One thing that's been uh, filling the headlines in the last couple of weeks is the coronavirus, which is, is not something that people get from drinking a certain beer, by the way. And it, you've probably heard about the cruise ship that's been docked off of Japan, the Diamond Princess. If you ever book for, on the Diamond Princess from this point forward, cancel your reservation. It's been docked off of Yokohama, Japan, and and um, among the people that are there on the cruise ship uh, in quarantine for a two-week quarantine since February 5th is 428 Americans who are uh, texting and calling and emailing their loved ones saying, please someone do something about this. We want off this boat. So far, 218 people have been diagnosed with the virus on that ship. Can you imagine, I mean, having looked forward to that cruise, having paid for your tickets, having looked in anticipation and packed your bags, and now it's like, I can't get off this boat fast enough. How, how that must have turned, how it turned sour. Waiting is not easy. Oftentimes it doesn't make it easier to wait with other people, especially if they're coughing and sneezing and passing germs around in the meantime. Made me think this week of the Chilean miners from 10 years ago, back in 2010. 33 men trapped in, for 69 days, about a mile underground, or a half a mile underground. Made me wonder, what is the longest amount of time that somebody's ever been stuck in an elevator? You might have heard this story, maybe not, back in 2008. A man named Nicholas White, a 34-year-old New York production manager, was working up on the 39th floor, and he, and he went all the way down for the longest smoke break of his life. Because on his way back up to the 39th floor, the elevator got stuck in between two floors. And by 11 p.m., everybody had left the building. His co-workers thought that he had left for the night without, anybody, without telling anybody. He actually, uh, there was post-it notes on his desk saying, hey, thanks for leaving. This problem happened while you were gone, and we need somebody to take care of it. He was stuck in that elevator for 41 hours, almost two full days. He says he didn't have a watch, didn't have any food, didn't have any water. The only thing he had to eat was Rolaids. There's actually time-lapse video that you can watch of him in this elevator, standing up, sitting down, laying down, laying in a fetal position, getting up, opening the doors again, climbing up on, you know, trying to do something with the ceiling, all this stuff for 41 hours. He paced around the elevator like a bug trapped in a box, fighting uh, claustrophobia every minute, which, by the way, claustrophobia is not a fear of Santa Claus. The fear of small, confined spaces. And it makes it worse when you're stuck in that tight space. You can think, if you're stuck with other people, you could think that, well, you know, at least that would make it better. But can you imagine being stuck for 41 hours with an elevator full of people? I mean, when it comes to, like, sleeping, you'd be like, okay, who's going to sleep for a couple hours? The rest of us will stand here. You're breathing, you know, eventually it's like you're breathing my air, you're getting in my space. It gets tighter even faster when you're stuck with somebody. We look this morning at how God's grace is at work as we wait. But as we wait, 
together. So we pick up in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7 through 11 this morning. We read, at the end, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Our verses start with this ominous statement. It makes you think of the guy standing on the sidewalks with the, the sandwich board sign saying, the end is near. It talks about the end of all things is at hand. But it's not talking about the end as in destruction. It's talking about the goal, the aim, the outcome, the planned outcome of all things. Peter talks about this. He uses this same term in, back in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, the, when he talks about the outcome of your faith being the salvation of your souls. The same word is used in Jesus when he talks about himself as being the beginning and the end, the summary of all things. There's nothing left that needs to be accomplished for Jesus to return. The end of all things is at hand. But why doesn't he? Why doesn't he return? We want to say to him, Lord, people are starting to talk. People are starting to doubt. People are starting to scoff at this idea or, or, or not even remembering that you said that you would return. Peter says as much in his second letter in chapter 3 where he says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following with their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. <clears throat> He's talking about here that, that we are in that climactic moment. We are in that, that, that final scene of the action movie. I, I uh, thought about a movie I saw recently, uh, a Mission Impossible movie, where, where it was coming down to the wire, the nuclear missile is headed towards San Francisco, and, and um, the one guy is fighting a bad guy down in the in the power breaker room in a building and a, and because he's got to throw the breaker so that so that the other person that that's in the the satellite relay room can hit a button so that the the other guy who's fighting another bad guy over the the missile control case could hit the kill switch at just the right time <clears throat> so that the warhead can be disarmed on the missile so in, in that last climactic moment, you see one agent finally throws the breaker, another one hits the button, then finally that last guy hits the kill switch, and, and 
the warhead disarms and, and falls into the, the San Francisco Bay at the last moment. And yes, that is a, a, a good ending to the movie. Okay, We don't want San Francisco blown up. But we in the same way are at this climactic moment of all of history. And we're waiting. Different from a movie like this. The saving work has already happened. The victory has already happened. The war has already been won. And we're waiting. Doing our job of waiting and loving and serving. Like some of those final movie scenes where, where in that last just climactic moment they, it happens in slow motion. It feels almost like we've been in slow motion for 2,000 years, doesn't it? And in the meantime, we're called to do the spiritual work of prayer. Our, our ch passage challenges us this morning to make prayer possible with a calm, clear mind. It says, therefore, because the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To be self-controlled is to have an understanding about practical matters and thus be able to act sensibly, to have sound judgment, to be sensible, uh, to, to have good sense. To be sober-minded is to be in control of one's thought processes and thus not be in danger of irrational thinking. Like the think, thought of, well, Lord, I gave you 2,000 years. I'm done. I'm done waiting. To be sober-minded is to be well-composed in mind. A modern equivalent would be keep cool. Peter knows about the challenge that it is to pray. Jesus told him, stay here with these two others. Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And what's Peter do? He fell asleep more than once. You have to wonder if these situations, these, these, these moments that, that his readers would have known of as those Gospels would already be circulating, that, that, that Peter would be thinking, oh, referencing in his mind how they are to do differently. In Ephesians 6, Paul reminds us that our battle is spiritual. It's not against people. And we're told to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Kenneth Wiest puts it this way. He translates it, be calm and collected in spirit with a view to giving yourself to prayer. I've shared with you before one of the, one of the illustrations I think of, of uh, or, or the moments that illustrates this in, in a military term is, is when that soldier has a responsibility to, to deal with a, an embankment or deal with a, 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 um, a piece of, of, of equipment or, or a, um, an artillery piece that he has no ability in himself to remove from the field of battle. He has no ability to deal with it in himself. But what's he been given? He's been given this laser. And his job is to aim that laser at that fortification, at that piece of equipment. And that laser, it's called marking the target. 
so that the hellfire missile or the artillery or, or whatever type of ordinance can finally come in with more power than that individual soldier could ever have and destroy it. And that's what we're called to do in prayer is to mark the target. Mark the target so that God can come in and take it out. So that God can come in and do the work that only he can do. Know that God understands how hard it is to keep calm and a clear mind. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told us. He wouldn't have commanded it. But what he commands us to do, he is ready with the grace to help us to accomplish it. Ask God to give you a calm and clear mind for reading the newspaper, for listening to the news. You know, I helped myself a little bit this week by just going ahead and deleting a news app that I had on my phone. You know, it's like, I'm good. I'm having a hard enough time keeping a calm, clear mind. We're called to turn our cares into prayers. I know that this is easier said than done. I know it personally. I, I have struggled this week with having a calm, clear mind. You know what? I, I told Dan this morning, I, I so appreciate that we're singing the song Waymaker because I've been listening to that song over and over again this week for this purpose because I needed it. We'll see Peter challenge us in chapter 5, verse 7, when he encourages us to cast your cares on God because he cares for you. It's not just because he can do the work, but it's because he, of all beings in this universe, cares most for what your mind is swirling with. We also see in here the importance of living in close proximity with one another and loving each other. I've heard of uh, some of you when your kids growing up were were squabbling together. You might force them to hug it out. You know, okay, hug each other. I don't want you to stop hugging each other until you're done fighting. I've heard of some people having like a special extra large t-shirt. It's like getting the t-shirt. And they make their kids get put this T-shirt on both of them with both of their heads sticking out of the, the neck of it. And they're like, you can come out of there when you're done fighting. And eventually they're laughing. They're, what do we need to do? What do we need to say to each other to, you know, get out of this? Well, God intends that we learn to love and to keep loving under, over this extended period of time of, of closeness, of waiting together. We're challenged to make it a priority to love each other. To make it a priority. That's what he means when he says, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers over a multitude of sins, even even the cell phone going off, love covers over that. (laughs) He says, keep loving. And the term there is agapao, that unconditional love. Have an unconditional love for one another and keep having that love for one another even though it seems like you've been waiting forever. Keep loving 
But folks, as Peggy pointed out, this does not happen from our own sinful hearts. This is a love that we are given by the Holy Spirit for one another. As Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or Galatians 5.22 reminds us that the first of the fruits of the Spirit is love. The fruit, the, the outgrowth, the benefit of His Spirit indwelling us is love. That's to be the result of it being, of us being indwelt and filled with the Spirit. And we're told to keep loving one another earnestly. We've seen this word before. It's not, it's not named after a guy named Ernest that starts everything with Hey Vern, you know, if you remember that guy. But earnestly, it's used to describe, and we've seen this before, it's used to describe the, the reaching, the straining muscles of an athlete as they're finally running that race in that competition and they're finally at that finish line and they're straining out to break that tape. They're, they're competing earnestly. At full stretch and in all-out manner. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Again, folks, that is not a heart that we have on our own. That is a a heart that is changed in us and changes our love from the inside out giving us the love as the fruit of the Spirit. We're told that love covers a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean love ignores the sins of my brother. It means love doesn't hang his sins out like dirty laundry. That's what it's, it's referencing, an idea like what's described in Proverbs 10:12. Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all offenses. You know, love is about doing certain things. Uh, Hopefully men, you, you know, Valentine's Day is more than just when you play Don Juan. But it reflects a love that you have throughout the year. Love is about action. As 1 Corinthians 13 Reminds us in verses 4 and 6 and 7, love is patient and kind. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But did you know, love is also about what we do not do. We don't do things that harm the relationship. Kelly and I are... uh, are aware of, they, we know a couple, it's not one of you guys, that, that the husband, you know, finally told the wife, like, listen, when I hear you say, well, my husband, I know it's not something I want talked about, you know, because love is also about not doing certain things, not talking about certain things. Love is often what we don't do. As 1 Corinthians 13 also says, it does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not listen on its own. I'm sorry, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
So here we see that love calls us to cover over sins of the fellow harvester, to not hang them out for public view. Or as Kenneth Wiest also says, when one Christian truly loves his fellow Christian, he will not publish abroad his failings, but will cover them up from the sight of others. And they ask this question, how much gossip is eliminated when we love each other? Specifically, we're called to make it a priority to love each other by embracing each other's needs. He shares a specific example of show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In the cultural context of this, hospitality was a legitimate, serious need that was held by the, by the church in general. If, if a person would be visiting from a Christian coming from another area to that area and he'd be uh, attending uh, the church, the assembly of the God's people in that town, um, it would be normal for them to say, you need to stay with us. Because, you know, the hotels, the motels of that day, uh, they could be dangerous or unpleasant. They'd be like the, the Old West saloons where you could get a room upstairs, but it was a place of ill repute. You might have a bullet coming through the floor. The conversation could happen like this. They're told, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The conversation might say, so where are you staying, brother? It's good to have you in town. And he says, well, I, I found this place called the Rusty Spur. Oh, brother, you can't be staying there. You, uh, you wouldn't be able to stay there and not face serious temptation or even danger. You need to stay with me. And by the way, how long are you staying, brother? Well, I'll tell you, with people this nice in this town, I might just stay a month or two. And the one who invites him at that point is to not grumble, but to see it as this is what God has for me to be doing. We should be seeking to meet each other's needs in real ways, housing, food, and clothing. Wayne Grudem says, within the fellowship of the church, Also, earnest love for one another will find expression in the use of our spiritual gifts. Not for self-advancement or to draw attention to ourselves, but for the benefit of others. So making it a priority to love each other involves glorifying God by using His gifts. See that? They're not our gifts. They're His gifts. That He is, we have them on loan from him. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Notice, God, guys, our spiritual gifts are, are a way in which God's grace is at work among us. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, he closes with. Spiritual gifts, as we've talked about at different times, are something that every believer, when they come to know Christ as their Savior, what happens when a person comes to know Christ as their Savior is the Holy Spirit indwells them. And they at different times have, have, uh, are in a 
more or less place of being filled with the Holy Spirit. At times of being more or less um, in submission to the Lord and and living according to his truth and, and by his guidance, they are more filled with the Holy Spirit. And at times where they have allowed God to remove other things that are filling them that they might be depending on rather than God, maybe some of those things, good things that they found dependence on or 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 things that he's commanded against. And and as he allow we they allow as we allow him to remove those things from us. And seek to walk in greater and greater dependence on him. We are greater, more greatly filled with his Holy Spirit. And if you imagine that tank is having kind of nozzles out of it through which we minister to others. Those nozzles in which we are spiritually gifted are those in which this Holy Spirit flows more greatly through them. And that's how you, as you could describe someone's spiritual gift in an area that they minister in. We'll, t- we'll talk a little bit about how to know what those are. One writer says, one could say there is almost limitless variety of different spiritual gifts, all manifestations of the richly varied and abundant grace of God. As God's grace is richly varied, so are the gifts flowing from his grace. Gifts are the gifts that are highlighted here. I want you to notice are kind of on opposite ends of the visibility spectrum. Okay, you have the one who speaks, who is out in the open, up in, in front, visibly present, and the one who serves in the background. Maybe no one sees them. And he's talking about how both of these is a stewardship from God and should be seen as such. So we tend to think that the gift of one who is speaking is more important than another. But I want you to see here that the importance really has to do with the context that we're talking about. You know, the importance that we see, okay? A guy might take pride in the fact that he's, I'm a speaker, I'm not a servant, but his speaking might be to his his bored co-workers once a week, kind of giving them their briefing. Another person might be a servant. We might think, oh, you know, they're just a servant. But what if they're a servant to the Queen of England? That might be a little bit more significant if you meet them in the, in the tube in London, you know. Where do you serve? Well, I'm, I'm Her Majesty's special servant. So it, it has to do with what as is, is, is the, the, the context that they're in. What, what position are they stewarding? What's the significance of what they're communicating? But it doesn't boil down to what you're doing, but, but what, what you are stewarding. Notice both are stewards of God's varied grace. A steward is one, as the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, a steward was one who served as a household manager. He had no wealth of his own, but he distributed his master's wealth according to his master's will and direction. So we might say a speaker is more significant if he or she is, is representing someone before the Supreme Court rather than just kind of bringing the boss's directions to his shift. A servant might be more significant, is more significant, as he or she is cleaning the, a priceless work of art rather than just the dishes in the sink. I'm not saying that one person is more important than another, but what I'm saying is our passage points out to us 
to look at what each person has been made a steward of. The very gift that they have, the grace that God has given them, but also they're, they're to think about the significance of what they carry. The speaker is told to steward this gift speaking the very words of God. That's what the term oracles is translated in other places. And that's not to say that he thinks whenever I speak, it's God's. It's, it's the, an oracle of God. No, he's to take into account that the significance of his ministry in as much, is as much as he is communicating the words of God. And the servant is to understand that they are stewarding this and working, and, and they are working by the very energy that God gives them. And, and I think it's valuable to point out, so one of a, a, the, the byproducts of doing ministry within the body is the opportunity to start to discover what is my spiritual gift or or gifts more than one okay so so to get your feet wet in doing ministry and and to 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 notice you know when i minister in that way i walk away with that with more energy than i went into it with i'm like excited about that and other people are like better you than me or 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 when i minister doing that it really makes an impact on people it's significant for them and both of those are true because it's not us doing the ministry. It's the Holy Spirit flowing through us when we're in a state of being filled with the Spirit and doing ministry according to our spiritual gifts. So those are just two ways that we can notice, but you don't find them with, without doing. And I encourage you to reach out to us or to one of the shepherds or to one of our ministry team leaders to start discovering your spiritual gifts if you don't know what those are, to use them if you do. Because another aspect of being a steward, guys, it means that, that God is essentially going to ask, what did you do with the gift that I gave you? What did you do with the gift that I gave you to use? Because it doesn't belong to us. We're a steward of it. We're called to make it a priority to love each other. Thinking back to that scene in that movie, you know, the, the missile is flying toward San Francisco. And, and um, so the, the, the breaker gets thrown and the relay gets pressed and the kill switch gets hit. And so what, it's, what they show inside the missile to signify that the warhead is now disarmed is, you know, you've got this reactor core right in the middle there that's about to explode and react, react and explode, I guess in that order. And, and all of a sudden this metal casing kind of clamps down around it and closes it off. And I, and I think about how tempting it is. It makes me think about how tempting it is while we wait and while we wait together to clamp off our hearts from each other. To clamp our, off our hearts from the world. Guys, we believe here at Harvest that God changes us from the inside out. That he doesn't make a, a, a real impact 
on our behavior without involving our hearts. That he's not going to really minister through you and to one another with your heart clamped off and saying, you know what, I, I don't need to have any love in this. I don't need God to give me a loving heart. I don't need to work from fruits of the Spirit. That's not how he does it. In fact, we're warned in 1 Corinthians 13 that, that we can make a lot, we could do a whole lot of things, and if it doesn't have love involved, it ain't anything. It's nothing. Alexander Strzok rewords the verses from 1 Corinthians 13 in his book, Leading with Love. And speaking as what would be considered the most extraordinary church teacher or leader to ever live. Now I'll tell you this, the person, people described here need a sabbatical. But he says, if I were the most gifted communicator to ever preach so that millions of people were moved by my oratory but didn't have love, I would be an annoying, empty windbag before God and people. If I had the most charismatic personality so that everyone was drawn to me like a powerful magnet but didn't have Christ-like love, I would be a phony, a dud. If I were the greatest visionary leader the church had ever heard but didn't have love, I would be misguided and lost. If I were the, a, the best-selling author on theology and church growth and didn't have love, I would be an empty-headed failure. If I sacrificially gave all of my waking hours to discipling future leaders but, didn't, but did it without love, I would be a false guide. Folks, God works through us as he works in us and on us. As his grace is at work in us and through us. Heart, mind, spirit, and body. I love how some authors of scripture, as they're, as they're writing something, and, and, and um, it's like they just get overcome and they just have to, have to give a doxology, even though they're not done with the letter. And, and that's what Peter does here. Where he says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a good reminder, as we wait... We're waiting for him, guys, because it's all about him. Everything that was everything was made for him and through him and by him. We're waiting on him because it's his show. It's his moment. It's his big reveal. It's interesting how Peter, among all people, knew Jesus as a man. He walked with him. He ate with him. He spoke with him. He watched him. Yet Peter cannot be helped but struck by Jesus as God, who, to whom belongs all glory and all dominion to rule over everything forever and ever. That's what we're waiting for. And that's what we should dwell on as we wait and encourage each other by. Let's bow our heads in prayer.